one thing that's different is what is Mark? Mark is, it's not a letter. It's one of the Gospels. And so it's different than things that we have been studying. It's not a letter. It's not an epistle. Um, it's not like Romans or Hebrews or something like that. And it's also not history, although it does tell history. But I think Jim touched on this last week when he said, you know, Mark, the Gospels are different than all the other books in the Bible um, for a lot of reasons. One, they're kind of the point of the Bible. Um, The entire Bible, as we've learned, is about Jesus. Um, it's, It's all talking about this plan that God has and his, his plan was to have Jesus and his plan was to have him come and die on the cross as we're going to see but the thing that's different about the gospels is their primary character their primary the hero of the story is also Jesus it's not only talking about Jesus Generally, it's talking about Jesus as he was walking around. And it's recording um, his interactions with others. And so there's like many layers of, um, there's just many layers to the story. There's not only the layer of Jesus and his interactions with people. There's also the layer of Mark and what he was trying to get across about Jesus. And so... All of those things come into play when we start reading. And so if you start and you read Mark and you read through chapter 8 and you're like, and they did this and they did this and they did this and they did this and they did this. And you read it like um, this is telling what Jesus did and what happened when and all of that. And it seems like it's kind of flat to you. And then as you read over again and you start reading uh, what what does this mean? If you probably noticed this week when you started your Bible study and when you finished it, it had fleshed out a lot. Did you notice that? Did anybody find that, that from the first reading through Mark to when you read it through again? Had it kind of developed for you? And so that's, uh, that is key to how we come to the Gospel of Mark. And it's been a long time since we've studied in this class a gospel. And so I wanted to just, again, point out that it's, it's different when you come to that. And, um, again, it's not just facts, and that's what we're going to see. And, again, you guys were saying it was hard to find key words, but uh, who were the key players in this story? When, we, when you started, who were the... The people, Jesus. Jesus, exactly. The disciples. Anybody else? Crowd. Crowd was a big one. Who else? I heard it somewhere. Pharisees, exactly. Anybody else? Blind man. And yes, exactly. 
And yes, and Peter was in with the disciples, but he was kind of one of the primary ones. And as you went through this, um, primarily in all of these things, who was pretty much there through all of the interactions? Yes, Jesus and his disciples. And so a lot of this um, was kind of also a picture of Jesus and his interacting with these, all of these groups of people, but also specifically how he was interacting with his disciples as he went through this. And I think Mark was showing how Jesus was interacting with all of these groups of people and especially with his disciples and with Peter. So um, we couldn't really find repeated words very much, but what was kind of repeated in this a lot? Did you notice a pattern? A way of talking, a way of um, interacting? Did you guys notice something that was there? Did you happen to notice that there were a lot of questions throughout this whole uh, chapter. There were a lot of questions in there. And what were some of the questions? Yes, do you not yet understand? And as we go through here, um, Jesus is questioning a lot, isn't he? He's questioning um, his disciples. And here are some of the questions. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you not see? Do you not hear? Do you not remember? Do you not yet understand? Those are some interactions that he had with his disciples. And then he's, uh, he also asked the blind man, what do you see? And then Jesus also asked, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And then at the end, for what does it profit a man? And also, for what can a man give in return for his soul? So questions were really, if you go through and you mark all of those questions through there, it almost gives you an outline of where this chapter is going and what's happening in it. And this is... Uh, it is, again, on two levels. It's how Jesus interacted with people. A lot of times he did that. He asked questions to help them see how they were thinking and where the, their thinking might be wrong. And also, it, it's also uh, how Mark is helping get the point across as he's going through here and he has these questions ordered out in um, kind of a leading fashion to get to uh, a point, and it's about Jesus. So questions were a big, a big player in this. So in uh, the, first, the first interaction that's there, um, there was again a great crowd. Why was there again a great crowd? Did you guys read back what had happened before this? 
he had fed the, he had fed a crowd before, and he had fed the crowd with five thousand, and that's the one that kind of comes up quickly in your memory from Sunday school, feeding the five thousand and the boy with five loaves and two fish. And then this is another instance of feeding, and what were some of the differences between the feeding? of the 5,000 and the feeding of 4,000 when you went through there. Did you? Exactly. The 4,000 were um, non-Jews or Gentile. And there are some things in there that show you. What are some other things about this? Um, The crowd had been there longer, hadn't they? They'd been with him for three days. Um, and yeah, and that's an important thing to notice because what is this, what does it tell us about Jesus? These people are getting ready to leave, go home. And he's concerned about them, isn't he? He's actually concerned for their welfare, and he doesn't want them fainting on the way home. And um, I think that's an important point, and it's something that we kind of gloss over. It's like, oh, it's another feeding, a bunch of people, they're really hungry, fed him. And you focus on these are miracles that happen to prove who Jesus was, but that wasn't the point of this miracle, and it wasn't the point of why Mark was using this feeding story. Um, and so um, they had, and they'd come the way they, they tell in the story. These people had come from a longer ways away, whereas in the other one, they had seen where he was going in the boat, and they, like, ran to where he was going in the boat and met him there. And also, there were a lot of towns close by because, remember, the disciples had asked, should we, should we send them home so they can get food? And he said, no, we'll feed them. But in this one, there wasn't send them home. They'd been there three days, and they were going to faint on the way home, and so they needed to be fed. And so there's some interesting key parts when you start comparing the two that are very different, but it does. It shows uh, how Jesus really did care for these people and not just um, not just their spiritual, but also their physical needs. He was, he was caring for them. And so it wasn't like um, those needs are not as as your spiritual needs, but they are, he is also there to take care of them. And I think that's important. Yes, Phyllis. He is aware of those and he will take care of us.
he's, he's more than he is able to provide for them. And so um, that is kind of what he's, and what, what stood out to you about the disciples in this? And we're going to talk about this some more, but They had short memories, didn't they? <laughs> and um, the other thing that stood out to me is when he asked them, they're like, well, how are we supposed to find food in this place? They, they were relying on their ability to, to deal with it and not remembering that Jesus had the ability to deal with this. They're like, okay, I've got to do this. How am I supposed to do this? And um, they were not. Jesus is asking them to do it, and he's also going to enable them to to do it. And they they were not remembering that. And I have a really big, I have a really hard time with that myself, of not remembering that he's going to ask me to do it, and he's going to give me. It's not my ability to do it. it it's him doing it through me, and I forget that. And again, the Decapolis, remember it said that's where it was, and you were talking about that, Bill. It was an area that was mainly, I'll draw this up here, that's supposed to be the Sea of Galilee. It looks a lot like a pork chop, but anyway. Yeah, but... Um, Okay, so this is important to the story because this area over here where the 5,000, feeding 5,000 took place, most of the people they were interacting with were Jewish. Over here where the feeding of the 4,000 took place, most all of the people were Gentiles. They were, uh, it was a multi-ethnic area and it was not a Jewish area. And this is important because this is happening, this is before the cross, and already there's a Gentile inclusion in the miracles, and Jesus is caring for them, and he's teaching them, and uh, this is an important part of why this is included in Mark, is to show that he is interacting with uh, and to show that the he's Gentiles. Savior for the Jews and the Gentiles. Exactly, for both. For both. Okay. And um, so, and we kind of talked about what's it. It's hard. You think, how come you didn't remember? You just did this. How come you didn't remember that? I just fed 5,000 people. Um, but when you think about it, how many, how many times a day um, is that the case with us that we don't remember? Um, we have a very, very uh, short attention span when it comes to how uh, God can provide for us, how Jesus can provide for us.
No, I don't think they did, and we're going to talk about that um, a little bit later. But no, they didn't. They didn't fully understand at all. And um, but the the disciples didn't understand. But um, from this, we move to an interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees. And what happened there? They wanted a sign, didn't they? And what was Jesus' answer to them? Well, they really didn't want a sign. I mean, because they'd already seen a lot of signs. Exactly. There's been a lot of signs. That is exactly it. That's exactly right. They wanted their Right, yeah. Yes. They were basically, um, it's kind of like when you uh, have a person that they're like, okay, show me, you know, and they don't, they're going to pick apart everything that you show them because they already had their mind made up that they're right. And they just want more opportunity to argue. They don't want a sign to be able to convince them of something. They want to argue with it and pick it apart. And that's the Pharisees. And what is that? What is that called? It's hardness of heart, isn't it? You already have your mind made up. And you're not listening. And you're not seeing the sign for what it is. You're wanting something to line up with your preconceived notions and your own plan. And that is exactly what the the problem was with the Pharisees. So... So Jesus basically refused to give. He sighs deeply, and he turns around and he walks away uh, because he knows their hearts. And he's already given signs, given signs right and left up to this point. If you go through Mark, coming up to this, there's all sorts of signs that Jesus is the Christ, um, but they're not seeing it now. The disciples don't see it either. They're blind, too, because they just said, how are we going to feed these people? And they're like, didn't you just see that? Um, But what was different between the disciples, his interaction with the disciples and his interaction with the Pharisees? Yes, and they're open, their hearts are open to teaching because Jesus does not turn around and walk away from them frustrated, but he teaches them, he helps them see, and 
he explains things to them, and he questions them. And he's like, do you not get this yet? Do you not get this? Do you not see? But he does tell them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, um, which earlier in the story, you know, Herod has John killed. Herod actually liked John. Herod liked to listen to him. And then, but he wasn't being, uh, he was not open to what John had to say. He just enjoyed uh, listening to what he had to say, but he wasn't letting it into his heart. And their hardness of heart, and Jesus is telling the disciples, beware of that, beware of that hardness of heart, that plan that's set up. Um, Because, as we'll see, the disciples didn't get it. They still had a plan that they thought that was supposed to happen. Um, They didn't have that hardness of heart, but they did have, they did not have the right picture of what Jesus had come to do in their head yet, did they? Like you were saying, Phyllis, they did not understand who Jesus was and why he had come yet. And what are some things that, for us, that can get in the way of uh, hearing God and knowing what what his plan is? What are some things that can get in the way of that? For us. Being concerned for our physical needs, like when they got in the boat just after they had the miracle, they were still concerned with bread. How, what are we going to eat? We're, we only have one loaf of bread. What are we going to do? Put it in the boat. <laughs> you know, we're kind of that way. We look after our physical needs and we're not always feeding and being as conservative should we about our spiritual and things of, things of God. Mm-hmm. Being overly concerned about our physical needs. Um, anything else? <laughs> I heard somebody say, speak up. Unbelief. I think that's a good one. <laughs> God is going to uh, take care of us. And, and part of it is, um, I think part of that is, is we have a pre-made plan as to what being taken care of is, what having our needs met is, and what, uh, what actually is God's overall plan. We have it planned out for him. And when he doesn't line up with what we have planned out, then we think he's not doing his job and the problem isn't with God it's with us and uh, what the actual plan is and um, what the big picture is and we basically um, say oh if God does this 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 and this um, that's going to indicate his provision that's going to indicate his his grace and his love and all of those things. And we actually do that with each other. We say, okay, if you act this, 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 and this way, it means this. And it's like, 
we may be way off base with that. And in the case of God, we're always off base. We're always the one that's off base. It's not him, it's us. And so how we have it planned out to say, ah, this is my indicator that God's, that God loves me or that God is taking care of me or that God is taking care of someone else. I have this indicator. And if we haven't gotten that from God's word and um, what the actual big picture is, then we can be off and we're, we're not going down the right road. And so with that, Jesus was very patient, and he's teaching. And that's, that's a, a good thing to remember that, that that can feed into our spiritual blindness, and, um, which brings us to uh, the, next, the next interaction, which just happens to, if you're reading along on the surface, oh, and we were walking along, and then a blind man came up, and hey, look at there, and there's this weird, okay, he healed the blind man in the middle of all of this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and Jesus and the disciples, and then we've got and the Jesus in the crowd, and then after this we've got more Jesus and the disciples, and there's this random blind man in the middle. Um, but is it that random? It's not, is it? Um, what, how does it relate how does this story about the blind man relate back to the verses before? And we kind of talked about that, that, that uh, both the Pharisees and uh, the disciples, they were spiritually blind, weren't they? Uh, and in... That's right. You have to think that's all that's, that's part of it. It's, it's kind of like a picture of what's going on in their hearts. And what Jesus is doing for them is being played out um, in an actual action. And that's, that's one of the really cool things I love about the Bible and about how God works and uh, Jim kind of talked about, well, last week when we were talking about how God does progressive revelation. The whole Bible is progressive revelation. And that's how God reveals himself to us. And he does it through history. He does it through actions you see. All of this stuff, all of the Old Testament leading up to this point. We know more and more about God. And he also does that in our lives. It's progressive. We don't get the whole thing. Boom. All right. You're good to go. Have fun. You're on your own. That is not how God works. And I think he's made us that way. That's how we learn. We learn ABCs, then we learn how to read words, then we learn how to read books, and then we learn how to um, figure out what books mean 
even after the story like this, we're, we're figuring out, ah, this isn't just about these facts that are going on. And we didn't all know how to read our Bible this way when we first started reading the Bible. But we do now, and we're learning more, and tomorrow we'll know more. And that's how he works. It's progressive. And so I think this is really good because in this story, the blind man, Jesus, touches his eyes. And what happens? He, he is. He sees. But just because he sees, can he process what he's seeing? Or does he just see things moving around? There's men that look like trees. So then Jesus comes and he touches him again. And then he can see. So he's, he's able to process this. And it's because Jesus has touched him again. And so the same thing with our spiritual blindness is that we need Jesus to come in and heal our spiritual blindness. Exactly. And I think you are right on point because that is exactly what they're thinking because Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And what are the, what are the answers? John. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then says, no, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? He says, you're the Christ. Okay, so he, boom, he nails it. You're the Christ. You're not John the Baptist. You're not Elijah. You are the Christ. Okay, so then, right after that, um, what does, he's like, so let me tell you about who the Christ is. And what does Jesus do? He tells them, what he must do. What must he do? And he starts listing off stuff. He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and after three days, rise again. And it says that he told them this plainly. And that plainly, that word for plainly, it doesn't just mean he told them clearly in, in good whatever, was he speaking Aramaic? He was, he was not just speaking clearly, but he was also speaking boldly. And it wasn't a, well, this may happen to me. It was, this is, this is the way it's going to happen. This is what must happen. Must is a huge word there. And what does that word must mean? What does that entail? They have to 
Yes, it has to. So if you think about that, Jesus suffering, being rejected, and when it says elders, chief priests, and scribes, who is that? In, it's, the, it's the Jewish, it's the people that are the leaders of their, the Jewish nation of which he is the Christ. Is, this is the king that is coming. And like you were saying, in their heads, they're thinking, okay, he's the Christ. So, wait a minute. He just said he's supposed to suffer and be killed and after three days rise again. So, Jesus is plainly telling them the cross is, this is the plan. This is what must happen. And then, what does Peter say? Exactly. They should happen. They must happen. They have to happen. That's or this the is, is not gonna This is what is happening. Right. Yes. And any and this at right in this interaction starts uh, from here on out he's teaching about this a lot. Uh, up until this point he hasn't talked about this at all to them. And then from here on out they they're seeing they're partially seeing they're kind of seeing Jesus as a tree walking around. Um, you're the Christ. I can figure that out. But I don't yet know what that means, what being the Christ means. Because what they've learned is that this is a king that's going to come in and marshal everybody up. We're going to be on the winning team, and we are going to rule, and we'll be in charge. And we'll be able to live the way that you told us to. Um, and it's completely out of their understanding right now. Well, don't you think that's interesting? Of course, it's not interesting. This is the way it's supposed to be. But the beginning of the story and the end of the story and then the miracle of the blind man in the middle yes. um, shows Right. And so it's like Peter, he doesn't quite understand. Exactly. Said, he's still, seeing, he's still seeing it partially. So this it happened in this way for a reason to illustrate to them, here's what's happening with you and what you know. So when Jesus says to Peter, we're, we're going to kind of skip a bit here because we're at the place where Peter rebukes Jesus. Um, and he basically tells him, uh, no, Jesus, you don't have it right. This is, it is not supposed to go like this. Um, it's supposed to go like this, this, and this. Um, and what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, again, I was talking about Jesus and his interaction with the disciples and how he is teaching them. 
He's being very patient with them. And he also sometimes, it calls for harsh rebuke, doesn't it? And he does. He rebukes Peter and he says, no, get behind me. Because what you're saying is what Satan offers me. All the power and none of the suffering. And that is not the plan. The plan is not all the power. The plan is the cross. And so Peter coming and telling him this is the same as Satan coming and telling him this. And here's the thing about that. Peter got basically shot down right there. But you know what? Jesus did not turn and walk away from him. He he is not giving up on Peter, and Peter is not giving up on Jesus. Ah, I didn't get that right. Okay, I'm just going to go sit in my corner. (laughs) And I think that's important for us to remember as well, is that sometimes we are going to fall flat on our faces and get a really big kick in the behind because we're way off base. (coughs) And it doesn't mean that God's done with us. It means that God loves us, and he wants us to learn. He wants us to get it right. He wants us to be healed so that we can glorify him. And so he is continuing to teach and rebuke, and sometimes rebuking is part of teaching. So I think that's good to remember. But Peter basically saw that Jesus was the Christ already, and then but he didn't see what it meant. And so he was still thinking in an earthly way. So then Jesus in 34, in verse 34, this is question 11, uh, he defines the price tag of discipleship and how much does it cost? How much does it cost? It costs everything. Um, Denial of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Denial of ourselves. Uh, Take up your cross and follow me. And what does it mean? This is question 13. What does it mean to deny yourself and take up your cross? Put aside your own pleasures. That's good. That's very good. Um, deny yourself. The, the word for deny um, <coughs> is to uh, forget oneself, lose sight of oneself and one's own interests. And I think that's exactly what you said, Tony. And um, also to affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with someone is to deny them. So if you're denying yourself, you are not focusing on you. And who are you focusing on? You're focusing on Christ. And um, I 
what does it mean to take up your cross? Exactly. You're giving up self-determination and what you want to do. And um, it's submission to God's plan. And I've, um, that one is kind of, it, it's easy to gloss over, um, take up your cross, because uh, we have kind of a colloquialism, oh, we've all got our own cross to bear, and um, which kind of, tends to mean, oh, I've got some burden that I have to lug around with me. And we tend to kind of think, well, that's it. I've got this cross. I've got to bear it. Okay, I'll just go ahead and bear it. And that is not taking up your own cross. That's focusing on yourself. And I think it's important to remember that taking up your own cross is that it is not, it does not mean everybody's got their own burden to carry. Um, but it is submission to God's plan. Because in the end, that is the ultimate of Jesus' submission to God is going to the cross when he, in the garden when he <coughs> prays, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. And he goes on with it. That is the ultimate act of submitting to the will of God. Um, and it makes me think of the baptism, you know, when we're, we die to the old self and rise again to meet the new life in Christ. Yes. That is. You're right. You have that power to submit within you that he has given you. So it's a killing of self-interest is basically what uh, that means. And um, I had one thing. Da, 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 da. Yes. Yeah, 
I think that's important because that's in question 12. What is the paradox that Jesus gives in verse 35? Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And that's just it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what, in this verse, what, uh, did anybody paraphrase it? I wanted to hear what. Which verse? The, in, in verse 35, the losing Whoever would save his life would lose it. It's question 12. Mm -hmm. It is selfless, isn't it? Now, how is that different than what what do you hear today? What, What things do you hear? How is this verse different? Well, yeah, that's very true. We get caught up in what he can do for us as opposed to how we can serve Brenda, his means. It does. It, it, it means you give up your life in order to take up his life and his actions. And whoever would save his life will lose it. And I think one of the things of this world is look out. You know, there's look out for number one. And I also think there's a big part of there's a lot of people out there that aren't looking out for number one. They're looking out for other people, and they're caring for them. But you know what this says? This says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels. It doesn't say whoever loses his life for other people, um, my kids, or um, humanity in general. That's not good enough. That is not what he doesn't mean if you go through life being a selfless person, You've done what I, what Christ has asked you to do. That isn't it. Um, it's not enough just to live for <coughs> others, but it has to be a submission to God um, to, and to Christ on 
the cross and taking up what it is that he has called for you to do um, and wherever that is. And so anyway, I, um, I think that's an important part of that verse that I don't know that I've ever looked at that before. I read the first part and it trails off at the end and I didn't think I'd ever seen that before to realize, nope, it's not a, a buffet of things that you lose your life for. It's for Christ. So anyway, any other questions? Any Oh, for, uh, Jim Elliot. Yes. Jim Elliot, yes. yes. That's a and that, that's actually a good uh, Say it again, Marilyn. summary. To close, uh, basically, um, what <coughs> Jesus had told Peter, what he was setting his mind on, he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And so, um, in Colossians 3.2, we are to set our minds on things that are above and not things that are on earth. And I think that's part of the process. Um, like I said at the beginning, it is a process. It is not a one-time magic thing that uh, Christ does to us when we believe, but it is a process. And the disciples... As we saw, they were still in the process, and they're not going to, they've got a long way to go um, before they end up receiving the Holy Spirit, and then they go gangbusters. And that is one way where we have an advantage over the disciples at this point in time, is that we now have the Holy Spirit. Uh, further along in the story, they do too. And um, we can't overlook that that's a huge part of the equation of Christ uh, healing us. So anyway, I think we'll take five minutes and then we'll... So let's think through this together. We're in Mark 8. You know the content of the entire chapter, and there's a lot going on. Um, so you have a number of different narratives that Mark is weaving together in a larger narrative describing the gospel of God and the coming of Jesus Christ, um, the coming of the kingdom in Jesus Christ, the coming of the Messiah, the confusion about what all of that means for the disciples, for Israel, and then we're applying it to our own lives. But I want to begin, um, again, backing up a little bit and asking this question, like, what is your problem? And how would you even answer that question? Like, what really is your problem? Some of you go, I'll tell you what my problem is. And everybody thinks that they have a problem. If I were to say to you, 
Like, what is the greatest problem that exists in your life right now? Tara? My selfishness. There we go, my selfishness. So she went to kind of a big big picture item, didn't he? Selfishness. And so selfishness, by the way, this isn't stage, but that's actually very helpful for where I'm going. Um, if the problem is her selfishness, like why is selfishness bad? Like why is it bad to be selfish? Basically, selfish is, so here's the, the planet, okay? And selfish means taking yourself and putting yourself in the middle. Self-directedness, right? And so the things that are kind of orbiting Tara's life revolve around her. That's what selfishness is, isn't it? Basically, it's like a me-centeredness, like a me-focusedness. And so the question becomes, and you, you guys have heard me talk about this before, like what's wrong with selfish? Like why is selfish bad? Like why do we even when we say that, we're like, wow. Like why shouldn't we be selfish? What's wrong with that? Okay, say that, who said that? Okay, so say that again. It doesn't bring glory to God. Now, if we, if we start going back, so this might sound like a strange statement, because that's actually very helpful too, by the way. Still not staged. Um, like, what's wrong with not bringing glory to God? Okay, disobedience. Say it again. It's what we're here for. So again, thank you very much. That's very, very helpful. Um, the disobedience piece is actually connecting to this as well. So when you say it's what we're here for, then what you're kind of saying is, is that this is not, like, this is not reality. It might be what Tara's doing, but it's not reality. When Tara takes everything and makes it revolve around her, the biggest problem with that is that it's not true. Like, it's not reality. Like, not everything revolves around Tara. Right? And you go, I know, isn't that crazy that she thinks that? Because it's actually me. Right? <laughs> that becomes the other side of it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why Tara got that wrong. It's, I mean, it's not Tara that everything revolves around. Like, it's Jim that everything revolves That's why, by the way, that's another way of saying what Brenda was describing when she said, when we get frustrated with God, when he doesn't do what we want, these are the expectations that we want with God. What is she saying? Like, when you say, like, I can't believe God did this to me, think about what that statement says. It means God allowed something to happen that you don't agree with, and he is wrong in that, and you are right in that, which means what? You're being selfish. And again, I want you to hear this. So what's wrong with being selfish? Like, that's not just, well, because it's bad. No, it doesn't answer the question. What's wrong with being selfish? And the answer is, it's just not true. It's not true that you are the one that everything revolves around. It's not true that, that, that you somehow have even the ability to sustain everything around you. Have you tried to sustain everything around you? Have you tried to keep your career going? Have you tried to keep your family going? Have you tried to keep your family safe? Have you tried to keep your family healthy? Have you tried to keep your, your family good? Have you tried to keep yourself good? How's it working for you? It doesn't work, does it? And then when it doesn't work, what do we do? We get angry, and we get mad, and we get depressed, and we get anxious, and we get, right? So this really at the very center describes like what's wrong with the world. 
So what's your problem? Your problem is truth A. Another way of saying it. So truth, the first truth, truth number one or truth A is this. Yahweh is God. Okay? That's the truth. And by that definition of that, that's not just a generic statement. It means that the reality, when I say God, that is the greatest being, the one that everything revolves around, every, all the glory has to fold into him, not you, okay? That God is at the center and that Terah is out here. Does that make sense? Terah is out here. Everything revolves around him. Everything finds meaning around him. Everything finds its purpose around him. Everything, when it's living right, folds its honor and worship and appreciation to him. And that is how the universe was designed to be. That's exactly it. And when the universe is working in sync, it is working in sync when God, who is truly at the center, is being treated as though he is actually at the center. Okay? And so I, I, I had someone in my office yesterday because of a, some conversations I started because of a sermon two weeks ago. And she was just really wrestling with a lot of these things. And she never really, a very intelligent person, had never really fully grasped how much of her life she was trying to control. How much of her life she was not prepared to deal with. And she would just share with me little stories. And they would go like this. Like I would tell God, like if that happens, I don't think I can do this. You ever said that? Like God, like if that happens, if that happens to my kids, I can't do this. If that happens to me, I can't do this. God, if that happens in the world, I can't do this. So these are, by the way, these are things we say. And so I said to her, by the way, that's a human response. I don't, I don't look at her in relation to what she's saying and going, wow, that is, that is so not a human response. What is wrong with you? I said to her, I said, listen, if you think I'm picking on you right now, I'm not. I've never met anybody that hasn't thought what you're thinking. I've, I've never met anybody. I mean, I'm one who thinks that too. Truth A is Yahweh is God. Truth B is that everyone, what I mean by all, okay, act as though they are God. See, and that, by the way, the definition of that, Terry, you called it disobedience. So the Bible calls it what? To act as though you're God. The Bible calls it sin. And the Bible says this is what's wrong with the world. So a couple of things. Number one, when you try to pretend that you're him, you are now in opposition to him, and there is disobedience and rebellion and judgment. Does that make sense? So that is going to happen. You're going to be judged. But not only that, but it's just it's an unsustainable way to live. It's unsustainable. At some point in time, you're going to find out that you're not, right? And so you're always living as though you are, but you're really not. But you're living as though you are, but you're really, really not. And so that's what the coming of Jesus Christ into the world does. Is it, it, the, the purpose of Jesus Christ is to deal with problem number one and problem number two. Problem number one, it's really not a problem, truth one I guess I should call it. Truth one is that Yahweh is God and so God now comes and he is with us. 
And he's going to actually deal with the rebellion that is actually taking place, which is causing us to kind of spin our lives out of control, which is causing us to, um, to, to find ourselves um, in, a, in a broken set of relationships and then probably many of us completely unaware that our relationship with God is somehow severed or broken. And so Jesus, this is what's interesting. And I, I was, it was fun kind of listening to everybody just kind of process these statements about what it means to die to yourself and what it means to find life, right? This is this new life. Like, why would Jesus talk like that? Why would Jesus talk about, like, death and dying and denial and, and, and like, again, to respond to what Tara said, like, selflessness? Why is he doing that? Like, what's his deal? And what is he trying to do? Isn't he trying to, like, reorder things the way that they should be? Which is why you actually see concepts like king. Who's the king? It's Jesus. King Jesus. And kings reign over a what? A kingdom. Now, do you understand why Jesus makes those statements? The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is within you. These are statements that Jesus is making, which all of a sudden come back and say, hey, let's go back to truth A and truth B. And, and honestly, I'm just going to, for the sake of just how beautiful this can actually be, like truth, truth C, I'm just going to put is a person, and that's Jesus, who is the full embodiment of truth A and the correction to truth B. Okay? He is the one that fixes this. Now the problem is, and this is why it's so critical, this is what, um, uh, this is what Mrs. Coffey was describing. She was describing this. Now here's what we need to remember. People who, just, people who just acknowledge that Jesus lived or that Jesus died, like that's not what a real Christian is. Right? That's what she said. Do you believe that? Sure. Now what, but what is she really saying? What, what she was actually making a statement of was this. She was drawing it all together. She was actually saying, just saying these statements doesn't fix the problem. Just going truth one, truth two. I believe in truth two. Or I believe in truth one. Really, that's what, I believe Yahweh is God. I do too. Doesn't fix the problem. It, it, there's, no, there's no way in which that fix the problem, fixes the problem. And so the concept that you actually see in Mark's gospel Okay, because i got to get into Mark 8 at some time. The, the concept that we actually see in Mark's gospel is Jesus becomes this divine corrective to what is actually happening. And what you see in chapter 8 is this coming to somewhat of a head in the life of the disciples. Coming to a head in the life of the disciples. So they are people who have considered in many ways, they are the children of Abraham, they are descendants of Abraham, they are, they are blessed by God. But they're still, in many ways, trying to manage these two issues instead of trusting Jesus to manage their issues. And I would even say that's something we always wrestle with. You know, it's so easy in this classroom to talk about what denial means and living for him. And I mean, it's so easy here. But the real truth is, is that, I mean, imagine how many issues in our lives are actually answered by... Um, by the example and the call for things like self-denial. I think about this. I think about talking to like teenagers 
Um, and, I, and so, for example, I've got, I've got three sons, and so let's say I found out one of my sons was doing something inappropriate sexually with somebody else, and I were to say, hey, son, like, you shouldn't do that. Like, how many of you said, because you do know that body that you have is, like, not your body. It's Jesus' body. Would you do that with Jesus' body? And by the way, that girl that you're with, like, that's Jesus' body. Like, would you do that with Jesus' body? The answer would be what? No. Nobody would do that with Jesus' body. That would just be, I mean, that would just be terrible. But we think what? Whose body is this? It's my body. Like, think about, honestly, imagine the whole abortion conversation, if everybody were to admit. Like, actually, nothing belongs to any of us. Nothing belongs to any of us. Like, that's not your body. So a woman has the right to do to her own body. And a lot of people believe that. I'll be honest with you. I don't believe that. I don't believe a woman has a right to her own body. Not if she's a follower of Jesus Christ. She doesn't. And actually, I would even, even if she isn't a follower of Jesus Christ, she may think that she does. But in the end, she will give an account. But by the way, I believe the same thing about men. I believe men don't own their bodies. Like, this isn't my body. That's why when a couple decides to get married, and I'm sure you've heard about this, there can sometimes be complications in the matters of sex. Anybody heard about this problem that can exist? But honestly, what does Paul say about it? You know what Paul says about it? Paul says, hey, Andrea, like your body is not yours. It's ultimately Jesus's, but in the context of marriage, it's Jim's. Like it's not yours, it's his. That really answers a lot of questions, doesn't it? And by the way, Jim, like, your body is not yours, so just in case you go, great, that means I can do what I want. No, no, no. Like, your body is not yours. It's actually Jesus' body, and therefore it's Andrea's. Like, you put Andrea before you, and Andrea goes, and I need to put you before me. Like, think about how many problems would literally be solved if we were to just go back. I mean, because I heard you say it, and everybody's like, yeah, self-denial. Yeah, we should, like, deny ourselves and follow Jesus. Can I just follow you around for a while, or you me? I mean, honestly, or you me? And go, like, would, would Jesus spend his money on that? Like, how many of you kind of have, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you kind of have the idea that, you know, I really probably should give Jesus back some of this, uh, some of my money? Like, who, who's, whose house you living in right now? Question, whose house you living in right now? Whose car are you driving right now? Think about it. Whose retirement are you saving for? By the way, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I just want to know. Whose? And honestly, you know what the real answer is? Mine. That's the answer. It's mine. There's something broken with that. There's something fundamentally broken with that. So this is an ongoing process that we are going through of of how do I let go of like... (laughs) My life, how do I let go of my children? I've had so many people say to me, so I'm just going to, because you guys are my favorite people in the world, okay? So I just want to give you a heads up. Please do not come up to me or my wife and say, I don't know how you're going to live if your daughter Olivia has a baby of yours and then moves to Poland. Please don't say that to us, because we're going to be fine. We really are. I'll tell you how it's going to work. How it's going to work is we believe that Mac and Olivia have been called to Poland. Okay, that's what we believe. And you're going to say, yeah, well, you're not a grandpa yet. Someone tell Nancy this, by the way. But you're not a grandpa yet. 
And I'm going to say, okay, well then, you, the one of two options, either you can rebuke me when I'm a grandpa who can't figure out how to live, like I'm not putting my grandchild here, right? My grand, I, I, hope, I, I hope I love my grandchild even more than I love me. My grandchild will be a terrible deity, terrible. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go, if they decide to have the baby in Poland and it comes August 25th like it's planned, we're going to try to go visit sometime. And, and we're going to be so excited to get there, right? And then um, about two or three days before we leave Poland, we're going to be sad. And then the last day, especially at the airport, we're going to cry and cry and cry and cry and cry. I mean, I'm serious. We will, I promise you. And then halfway over the, and then, and then my wife is just going to keep on crying. I'll probably stop first. And then halfway over the Atlantic, we're going to stop crying because you just can't cry forever. Okay? And then we're going to probably land somewhere, and then we're going to get home, and we'll just kind of feel a little out of sorts for a while and maybe FaceTime and feel a little bit better. And then occasionally we'll be sad, but we'll find this great contentment that they're doing what God wants and we're doing what God wants. And like, Honestly, that's what we're going to do. Is that crazy? And by the way, it's not because I don't love my grandkid. And it's not that I don't love my kids. It's why I left my dad in 1991. Why? Because my dad is not the center of the world, and my mom is not the center of the world. Okay? So this goes into so many different areas. And so when Jesus says to us, like, I want you to, to take up your cross and follow me. I want you to deny yourself. Okay? It's amazing how much, even with our joking language, like, we really don't buy it. And so it's not just Peter. Oh, Peter's so dumb. He always overspeaks. No. Peter was just doing this. And Jesus had to step in and go, hey, you're acting like God again, Peter. I said, I'm going to go to a cross. Like, that's the big issue that, by the way, that's the hinge in, in Mark 8. The hinge in Mark 8, one of the sub-themes for Mark's gospel is Jesus, the suffering servant. Okay? The suffering servant. He's going to, the Messiah, the Messiah is going to be a suffering one. And, I mean, honestly, that's the part that's hard. And by the way, in, in, Matthew, in Mark's gospel, as well as in Matthew and Luke and John as well, Jesus likes to point out this. And by the way, I am the one that you're supposed to be following. So if you want to know what's going to happen to you, just watch me. If you know what your life is going to be like, then just watch me. Like if you want to know how to respond and how to live, then just watch me. That's what Jesus says. And so part of what is kind of causing a problem with Peter is I love the idea of you and what that ultimately means. But when that begins to intrude into my world, see, most people think of, like, they think they actually have a sin problem, right? You don't have a sin problem. You have a you-think-you're-God problem. And that results in sin, which results in separation, which can only be fixed by God himself. And then once God gets a hold of that, now all of a sudden everything is reordered so you may still struggle with obedience. So hear me, you may still struggle with obedience, but again, the problem isn't sin. The problem is the fact that you decided to, you know, act as though you are not him, or act as though you are him when you're not him. Thoughts. No, but honestly, that's a, see, what Tony just said there is a great, is a great like, theological application. So now realize, that's great. Let's put a, pull it back into Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, the great commandment. 
which is not just to love God, but it comes from the first commandment, which is what? I am Yahweh, your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Like, why does he say that? Because he's a jealous God. Yeah, but why is he jealous? Well, you want to know why he's jealous? Because he realizes lots of things that anything that does not have him at the center robs him. How many of you do not like to be robbed? You just don't appreciate it in any way, shape, or form. By the way, that's not a bad, that's not a selfish response. That's actually called a normal response. God doesn't like to be robbed. So when you have stuff that is God's and you act as though it's yours, that would be what? That's robbing. That's why in Malachi, why do you rob God? Well, how do we rob God? Well, when you give him terrible sacrifices. That's how you rob God. When you don't give God what's his. They, they say to Jesus, hey, like, Jesus, we got these coins here. Should we give these to Rome? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? What does Jesus say? Whose face is on it? Well, Caesar's. Well, I guess if he loves it so much he puts his face on it, why don't you give it to him? But, hey, be very, very careful. Be very, very careful giving, to, or giving something um, that is, like, think about your image Right? Be careful not giving that to God, essentially, is what Jesus is saying. Give to God what is God's. Like, that's you. That's all of you. And I, I love to bring together, now hear me, there is something that is wrong when you and I act like this that puts us in violation of God that actually stirs up His righteous wrath. Okay? And nothing but Jesus' death on the cross can fix that. I want you to hear that. I also want you to recognize that like, this is what happens. This, I, I honestly believe that some, I, I'm so, I don't know why I'm so afraid to say this, but um, I genuinely am afraid to say this. So please, I hope, I hope you can hear, hear this well. So much of the anxiety that we suffer through as a culture, because I, I, here's what I've now come to believe, that um, 11 out of 10 people are probably on anxiety medication. 11 out of every 10 people I meet are on something. Okay, um, it's honestly it's it's it is unbelievable to me. I mean, I I don't know if I know anybody that's not on something. Okay, it's I think it's eleven out of ten. Sure, you keep saying that. Okay, so no, I'm just kidding. Here's but here's the point. But I think a lot again, and I know that's a complicated piece. That's why I really want to be careful saying this. Okay, I got lots of people that I love that are dealing with issues. Um, I think a lot of that has to find at some level its roots in, because when I ask them, like, what's going on? It's like, well, I just can't handle life. I just can't handle what's, if something happens to my kids, and what if, what, if, what if this, and what if this, and what if this? It's literally like I'm trying to control everything, and I can't control everything. I just can't control everything. I'm going, okay, and that's not okay. No, it's not okay. And that makes you anxious. Yes, that makes me anxious. Okay. I, I get it. I don't even go, you're crazy. I go, no, actually... To come to grips with the fact that God is God and you are not is what Jesus keeps saying over and over and over again. Can, can I tell you something? I, I missed the beginning part, Brenda. Um, and I came to this realization. Many of you have heard me actually say this. Um, I really believe when Jesus turns to the disciples and says, hey, there's a huge crowd here. Feed them. I've heard so, and I've, I've preached it wrong for many years. I pray, yeah, what's wrong with these disciples? They just didn't trust. I, I, I think what they should have actually said was, and I think they did say this, um, we cannot do this. And Jesus goes, yeah, you're right. Glad you figured that out. 
I know you can't feed him. I mean, think about it. How does John 6 tell the story? John 6 tells the sermon behind the story, doesn't he? Which is what? Hey, all of you guys are awesome, and if we just pool together, we can feed everybody. That's kind of a worldly approach, isn't it? Let's all pull together. If we all pull together, okay, maybe none of us individually are God, but collectively we are. And if we all, how many of you have heard those sermons, right? If we all pull together, we can change Stillwater. If we all pull together, we can put an end to poverty and racism and sexism, blah, blah, blah. If we all pull together. No, we can't, by the way. I don't believe we can. I believe ultimately God will, and I believe we need to be involved in the process, but we cannot do it. And so when, they, when Jesus turns to the disciples and says, you feed them, and they say, we cannot, Jesus says, you're right. And then in John 6, he says, for I am the bread of life. I am the bread that have come down from heaven. And unless a man like eats and drinks my flesh and my blood, then he will never be satisfied. Because you'll keep eating and eating and you'll get hungry again and you'll need to eat. But if you eat me, like if you devour me, and he uses a very kind of interesting word, he uses the, the Greek word troge, which means to munch violently, like voraciously, like you're starving. And honestly, most of us nibble on Jesus. Most of us nibble. Because why? Because we've been eating all day. And I know, I, I, listen, I even know it's the most important meal of the day, but I'm telling you, I've been nibbling all day. And I just don't have that. That's why, by the way, that's why in John 6, after the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus stands and says, I am the bread of life, a bunch of people went, I don't agree with you. And everyone walks off. Interestingly enough, satisfied with food, completely empty in their souls. But they feel satisfied. That is probably my biggest concern every Sunday, is there are so many people who do not have Jesus who feel satisfied. They are living in, I believe this, some kind of illusion here. They're finding some kind of illusionary false reality. And I, and I, what I think is going to happen is either they will get like glimpses of waking up, like when they get sick or they become completely incapable of handling life situations, they get completely broken. Health, wealth, when those things go away, like it, it kind of becomes a bit of this wake up moment for them. Or if not, ultimately death. When now all of a sudden you see him face to face. And now the reality has come. So that's what's happening in John 6, which, by the way, is the feeding of the 5,000, which is the Sermon on the Bread of Life, which is this, hey, like, uh, that's why it's interesting. And I think it was, I think it was Ryan. Some of the, somebody pointed this out to me when I was preaching at it in Matthew's Gospel. This is probably one of the only miracles that the disciples never do, like after Jesus is gone. They raise people from the dead. I always think that's the biggest one, right, raising people from the dead. The disciples did that. Two things that Jesus did that are absolutely amazing, that I've, I've come to just absolutely love, is number one, to, um, to confront the devil in the wilderness and to not sin. That's Jesus not just giving us ways to do it, but is saying, I have accomplished this for you. And the feeding of the 5,000 is another one of those. And then his resurrection is another one of those. So do you see how, and I loved, I loved what Brenda was describing, so I'm not going to spend much time there, but the awakening or the, 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 the removal of the blindness of the disciples, what is the blindness of the disciples? Is like, is we need Jesus for this. 
Like he's not a, we don't need a prophet. It's like think about, think about that conversation. Who do people say that I am? Well, you're another, you're another life coach, Jesus. I can always, couldn't you guys use another life, like a, maybe a little more insightful life coach? Maybe one that's, that loves you a little more. I mean, that's what we're looking for, right? Someone that'll, someone a little more insightful. That's why we love like new speakers. They're a little more insightful than the last speakers that we had. Or a new relationship because they will love me a little bit more. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we're looking for? Yes. Love me more. Give me more insight. This is what I so desire from you. And Jesus goes, actually, that's not your problem. Your problem is not that you're not loved. You are. And your problem is that you don't have insight. No, that's really not your problem. The problem is, is that you don't have me. And unless you have me, you have, you have nothing. But you'll feel as though you're satisfied. Therefore, as my disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Well, that just sounds really, really hard. And Jesus says, what? It is. It is unbelievably difficult to give up the throne. I mean, honestly, do you not still struggle with it? Like, is it not, is it not the, the seed, the root of every other problem that you have in your life? It is. And that's why until we come to, by, by the way, that's why conversion, going back to what uh, you, you had mentioned, Diane, that's why without conversion, without admitting this, without recognizing, without just, without just saying, I believe in Jesus, right? It's, it's not, do I believe in Jesus? Is it, do I believe in Jesus? Like the word believe means to put your trust in. That's what it really means. It doesn't just mean cognitive assent. It's to put your trust in, which means to act as though you're not God. So I kind of look at it this way, like almost on a daily basis, I got to go up to this tree that Jesus said, do not touch this tree. For if you do, you will surely die. And every day I got to walk up to this and go, I don't think so. I think I, I, think I can eat this. Like I, I mean, I, I, get, I get what Jesus is saying. I, I think it's even an idealistic way, but I'm hungry, and that fruit should actually fix my problem. And I'm going to have to decide whether or not, because sometimes my wife makes me mad, and Jesus says to love her anyway. And I, no, I kind of want to stick it to her and then love her. Can I stick it to her and then love her? Like, can I be sarcastic and rude and then love her? And Jesus says, no. And, I'm, and I look at that fruit and I go, uh, I think I'm going to do this my way. And God says, I want you to trust me, whether that's with my finances or with my relationships. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me with your grandkid. Do you trust me? And I'm like, you know I don't trust you. He's like, again, that's your problem. Do you want to trust me? Oh, I so want to trust you. I so, so, so want to trust you. I mean, don't you want to trust Jesus? How do you do that? Actually, by trusting him. That's how you, that's how you learn to trust someone, by trusting him. How did Abraham learn to trust God? By getting up, packing, and moving, not knowing where he was going to go, not knowing this land. He learned to trust God by following him. And Jesus says, take up your cross daily. Die to yourself. And what? Follow me. You see how it fits? That's what he's saying. My last thought. The Apostle Paul is, is a good example of this. So the Apostle Paul, I don't know how well he understood this. Okay? 
Um, and, and again, I want to be really careful going too far down this road, but at some level something is happening where he would argue that Yahweh is God. He would even know that he is sinful, but there was truth see he did not obviously understand or appreciate. Okay, And I have to believe he knew of Jesus at some level, correct? On the road to Damascus, God blinds him. And do you remember how the conversation goes? Jesus says to him, that we don't know it's Jesus, a voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is interesting because Paul, Saul at that time, basically had an agenda. And this is what I find fascinating. Paul, sorry, Saul had an agenda that he thought God was on board with. Right? He actually thought it was God's agenda. I have this agenda. I mean, he is on his way to the, to the, to the, to the church in Damascus. So he can persecute Christians there because why? He's, the, he's a man of God. That's why. And with great zeal, Paul actually says the Lord forgives him because he did it out of, out of a blindness. Great reminder from Mark, Mark 8. A blindness at a zeal. Okay, Paul says God overlooked that at some level. So Paul, Saul has this agenda, and then Jesus comes in, and he interrupts the agenda and basically says, here's your problem, Saul. Like, you're persecuting me. Why are you persecuting? Who are you? I am Jesus. And he said, you're persecuting me. And, and at that moment, Saul like rearranges his life, and Jesus Christ becomes the center of Paul's life now. And what's very interesting is, is that Jesus says to, um, to Ananias, not the dead Ananias from chapter 5, but the still alive Ananias, and he says, um, go to Ananias' house. Ananias is going to baptize you. And then he goes to Ananias. He says, hey, listen, Paul, Saul's going to show up. <laughs> It's going to be really, really awkward, and I know you're going to be afraid, but trust me, he is now my servant. Like, he is now my servant. And then he says to him, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Think about that statement. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And a lot of us go, wow, God must have really not liked Saul. Like, why would you call someone and enlist them and then make them suffer? Like, what did he do wrong? This is why I'm getting more uncomfortable with the do not ask for patience because if you do, guess what God's going to do? Do not say you're not going to do something because if you say you're not going to do it, God's going to. So many of us actually kind of believe a really folksy, um, theologically wrong something around that world. I mean, that is such a jacked up way of thinking. And I meet people all the time, and I just want to ask, like, is, is God like this cosmic game show host to you? Like trying to get you to say door two because he knows, you know, the goat is behind door two? He wants to give you the goat because that's what he really thinks? No, it's kind of different. I believe there are three cars behind every door, right? No, it's not that either. Like, it's, it, 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 that is such a wrong metaphor to ask. God says to Saul, I'm going to show you how much you will suffer for my name. What's, what's fascinating is when you read Saul tell the story, it's not like he got the raw end of the deal at all. Saul looks at that and goes, I have life. Like, I have the greatest life ever. Like, I have Jesus. Like, I have the greatest life ever. Like, what else could you give me that I don't already have since I have Jesus? See, that's why it's so interesting. How we talk really betrays 
our problem. And it really betrays, ultimately, when we read the gospel, Mark 8, the solution, which is what? The full reality, not the distorted reality, of who Jesus is and what he has come to do and whether or not you're on board with that. Whether or not you're willing to finally accept that time of you playing God or me playing God, like that's, we, we got to just go, I'm done doing that. It's killing me. And I think that's kind of what the, 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 the grit in Mark 8 is these disciples are learning, in essence, to let go. That's why I think about it. What is, take a look real quick. That's why I love looking contextually. Like uh, Mark 9 is what? What's the beginning of Mark 9? Like after this blindness is slowly being removed, isn't it interesting? What do they see? They see Jesus transfigured, which means, in essence, somehow his glorified state. They see him like they've never seen him before. And what's fascinating is, what do they say, Peter? Hey, we should build like three tents. Oh, you still don't get it, do you? No. He's, by the way, still not going to get it, still not going to get it, still not going to get it. And so, but it's, it's interesting. Mark 8, you've got the feeding, the miracle. You've got the, the, the great intercourse, uh, intercourse between, uh, the di- dialogue between um, uh, Peter and Jesus, where he has to finally say, hey, here's my mistake. There's this, this complicated dialogue that happens. And then nine, you have the transfiguration, and then Jesus keeps moving. Jesus keeps discussing the problems and the difficulties, and they have to keep coming to terms with this. That's why I, I like to say to my students a long time ago, and I was really kind of speaking more from my own heart, was it is really, really difficult to come to grips with the fact that Jesus really thinks I am best dead, i.e., he's trying to kill me. Why? Because he loves me. And he knows that me living on this throne and me doing this is so not the way to work. That's conversion. Conversion is applying truth C to truth B. And I, I, I just think it's good to ask, like, have you done that? I'm not asking if you're a perfect person. I'm not asking if you've got it all figured out. I'm just asking, have you done that? Because, by the way, if you have, then all of a sudden we have a whole new set of questions. Now, all of a sudden, when you and I have a debate about, like, sexual immorality in, in life, we, we already know whose bodies they are. Like, we can already talk about things like finances and kingdom building. Like, we already have a conversation. I already know about how our marriages are going to look and how they're going to be married, right? Because we already have this example of sacrifice and self-denial. It's just that most of us don't want to give it up. I really think um, one of the best analogies for this, some of you may not remember this, some of you are about my age, and so you do remember it. Um, there was a movie a number of years ago called Weekend at Bernie's. Do you remember that movie? And it's about these guys that have this dead boss. I think he was a boss, wasn't he? Like a dead boss. And, uh, and they had to figure out a way to try to make him look alive this entire weekend. And it was this really stupid movie, really stupid movie. How do you make a dead corpse look alive? And I think about that analogy so often when I think about people who somehow say that they're dead, say that Christ is living in them, and it's just not, it's not right. Like something's not right. 
And it's actually because we're really not wanting to let go. We're really not wanting to admit. It is no longer I who live, but what? It is Christ who lives in me. Let me pray. God, thank you for your wisdom and for um, your purpose in our lives that we um, cannot see. Um, Father, there is a blindness in us, and, and, and we can sit here right now and be convicted by these deep truths. I just know that um, as I live out the rest of this week and the rest of this month and the rest of this year, I have to daily wake up and look at this tree and look at this fruit and choose to obey you. And that happens every time I'm wronged. It happens every time I feel your compulsion to move or to act or to be quiet and to not move or to not act. God, that's why we need your spirit, and that's why I'm so grateful that you promised that you would give it. God, the truth is, there's a lot of this that's working well. It's not like we never. I don't believe that either, God. I just, I just know that um, I'm just going to assume every one of us in this room want to do it more. We want more of you and less of us. We want a greater investment in the kingdom. We want to feel your presence moving in our lives. We want to see you face to face. And so I thank you for truly being the bread that the disciples could never manufacture, but providing it in Jesus. And so God, I thank you for that. I pray that I'd remember that, that on Sunday morning when I stand up to feed a thousand people, that if I don't give them Jesus, it might as well just be Big Macs. And that's true um, in our homes. That's true in our, uh, in our marriages with our grandkids. May we truly find joy and peace in giving people and receiving from others um, you. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen.